You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Cool, so like I just kind of prayed, um, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Amen? Right, Jesus was crucified and buried And three days later, he rose from the dead. This is amazing. This is miraculous. This is the central pillar of belief for billions of Christians across the world, historically and currently. But outside the the historic text and belief of the Bible, um, not a lot of people believe that still today. Right? Here's the thing. Jesus was dead. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't talking, he was dead, and then he rose again. So very, very, very few people deny that Jesus existed, right? There's a small, small, like, percentage of people that believe that Jesus didn't exist at all. Very, very few people believe or or deny that he existed and taught the things he taught, at least the, the less controversial ones. Like, nobody denies that Jesus, for the most part, nobody denies Jesus existed and that he said, love your neighbor. Very, very few people deny that Jesus was crucified. But, in the end, a lot of people deny that he rose again. Right? His, his story, history tells us, outside of the Bible even, there, there are multiple scholars and historians who believe in Jesus, that he lived and he died. Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Joseph, Josephus, the historian, The Babylonian Talmud, Lucian, right, all record the life and death of Jesus outside of the Bible. I don't don't list those to sound smart. Uh, I'm just trying to build the case that most people today and historically don't deny that Jesus lived. Most people today and historically don't deny that he died. But a much larger people deny that he rose again, a much larger amount of people. Um, and historians and scholars who study Corinth believe that there's a growing group of people in Corinth who call themselves Christians, but deny that the resurrection happened. Some believe that Jesus rose just spiritually, and some believe that he didn't raise at all, but there's a smaller growing number of Corinthians who believe that actually he rose in bodily form. They were saying well, you can still follow Jesus and be a Christian and deny the resurrection happened. And Paul hears this, and his rebuttal is simple. No, you can't. We're going to see an argument that Paul starts to make and unpack over the chapter um, that the resurrection is necessary in the gospel that we believe and for the gospel that saves us. So this morning, my goal isn't going to be, and I'm not going to work to convince you historically that the resurrection took place. I don't have the time or the degrees to do so. Um, But my hope is that the Spirit will begin to show us, um, begin to show us that the resurrection is necessary to the gospel and what the implications of the resurrection are. So um, let me begin uh, by reading some of the text in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, am I getting feedback a little bit? No? Okay, I feel like I hear it, but sorry. Reading on. 
Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So first Paul reminds them of the gospel, right? He says, remember what I preached to you. You received this, you stand in it, you're saved by it, so hold fast to it. What is that gospel? It continues in in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, if you've heard the gospel before, let's remember it together. If you haven't, this is it. Humans are created by God, right? We're we're able, we're created by God in his image. We're able to dwell with God in perfect harmony in a place known as the Garden of Eden. Yet humans decided to replace God's authority with our own authority in the event known as the fall. It's the, it's the fruit that Eve and Adam take. Therefore, because of this event, we now have authority over our own lives, and we are at odds with God. Right? We're at odds with God as all of humanity because of sin. Sin is everything that is at odds with God's moral law. So God defines himself and his guidelines for perfection through his law, through the the Old Testament. And yet all of humanity fails to live this perfectly, including us today, but, but specifically back then. Because God is just, one who upholds justice, because God is just, he can't accept imperfection. That would, that would be in tension with his character. He can only accept perfection, so we all fall short of this standard. Yet just as God is just, he's also merciful, which means he's compassionate and forgiving. So what does he do? He comes to earth in the form of man named Jesus, Jesus lives a perfect life, which no man has done before or since. He lives perfectly, and yet he is sent to the cross to die because he claims to be God, even though he was. But God, who is sovereign and in control of all things, planned and used Jesus' death through crucifixion to satisfy his justice. So since God is just, he demands payment for sin. And he pays for it himself by sending his son Jesus. And three days later, Christ rose from the grave and appears to a lot of people. Which means, at its core, that God has defeated death. And therefore, the payment that Jesus made for our sin is accepted. God accepts the perfect substitution that he demanded. Justice meets grace. So this is the good news. If you believe that Christ died for our sins and was buried and raised on the third day, and you follow him, then you have been reconciled to God. God has accepted payment on your behalf. You have been put in right standing before him. He no longer judges you on the basis of who you've been or what you've done or what you will do. This is why Paul calls this gospel first importance. He says that because everything depends on this belief for you. 
And this gospel summation of Paul, that Christ lived, died, and resurrected in accordance with the scriptures, that just means in accordance with everything the Old Testament predicted and said, that is the simplest belief for us. There's all sorts of secondary and tertiary things that we can argue about, but, but at, the, at its core, we can't argue about that. Right? Almost no one denies that he lived. Almost no one denies that he died. But plenty deny that he rose again. But if you reject that he rose again, you reject his deity. You reject his godness. And we're, gonna, we're not going to peek too far ahead. Marshall is going to unpack more of the implications of if Christ didn't die next week as we go through the text. But... Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a brilliant Welsh preacher, sums it up this way. If it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are still in your sin. It matters that much. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. So this is what Paul means in verse 1 when he says, in the gospel you stand, right? In verse 1. The resurrection shows us undeniably that God is satisfied with Christ's payment, that we stand secure because of this atonement. So the resurrection for us is the intersection of justice and mercy. Mercy because he rose again. The summation is this, reconciliation to God requires resurrection. Reconciliation requires resurrection. So in verse 2, when Paul says, unless you believed in vain, what does he mean? Well, like I said, some of the people in Corinth are saying, yeah, you can believe in Jesus and not believe in the resurrection. And Paul, Paul plainly says that that is actually called believing in vain. So when we think about the necessity of reconciliation requiring resurrection, he's saying when you deny the resurrection, you reject God's saving power. Your standing in front of God, just and merciful, is unpaid when you reject the resurrection. So reconciliation to God requires belief in the resurrection. Romans 10, 9 puts this more simply than I ever could. Because It says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the simplest summation of that. Paul goes on here to talk about the appearance of the resurrected Christ. He's kind of making a, uh, an apologetic or a defense of, for the Corinthians that actually people saw him and, and they were changed because of it. He says this, uh, Christ rose and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, um, Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So here's the thing. These, these church fathers that he names, Cephas, who's Peter, James, Paul, um, are church fathers not simply because they followed Jesus when he was alive. Paul didn't even follow Jesus when he was alive. He does the opposite, which we're about to find out. But they're not, they're not pillars of the early church because, because they followed Jesus when he was alive. They're pillars because they experienced him resurrected. 
For them, the resurrection is what kickstarts their proclamation of the gospel. It's what makes them willing to be jailed, martyred for their belief in this. Let's look, um, let's look back briefly at this gospel of resurrection requiring, uh, required for reconciliation. Let's look at Peter and Paul quickly as, um, as the best examples of this I could find um, anywhere. So Peter follows Jesus, right? If you know this story, bear with me. Peter follows Jesus during his life and ministry. Um, in all four accounts, uh, gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the story of Peter. Um, and to Peter's shame, we have the story of Peter denying Jesus three times in all four gospel accounts. Right? This famous account of these people coming up to Peter and saying, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you following Jesus? Weren't you with Jesus? And him saying, no, 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 not me, not me, not me. And that's where we leave Peter before the crucifixion, him weeping as a denier. And so let's pick up John 21. It says this, Jesus said to them, uh, the apostles, including Peter, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and they said, and the same with the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Third time corresponding with the three denials. And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time and said, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the type of death which Peter would would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. So what does Peter do? Peter goes on, historically we know this, Peter goes on to proclaim the gospel boldly. He doesn't deny Jesus ever again. And when he dies in roughly 64 AD, we have good reason to believe he was crucified like Jesus was, but because he was ashamed to be crucified in the same way Jesus was, he has to be crucified upside down. So what transforms a simple denier into one of the first martyrs crucified in one of the most agonizing ways you could consider. I'll tell you, it's the appearance of the resurrected Christ, where Jesus literally reconciles Peter, right? Jesus, in the three askings of, do you love me, Peter is literally reconciled to Jesus, but also spiritually reconciled through the work of Christ on the cross and commissioned into the proclamation of the gospel, which he does faithfully. Jesus says, follow me, and Peter only follows him from here on out. And so again, let's look at, let's look at Paul's experience in Acts 9. He's called Saul here, um, but later in Acts we learn that uh, Paul is also called Saul. Saul is kind of his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. A lot of biblical figures have many names, but that's not really important. So Acts 9, let's read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, 
so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that is, anyone following Jesus, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is the type of guy Paul slash Saul is. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But rise, oh, yes, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So these, the men that are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He went blind. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he didn't eat or drink. And jumping down a bit, um, a man named Ananias receives a vision of Jesus telling him to go to Saul. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Paul, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you could regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales falls from his eyes. He regains his sight. He rises, he's baptized, he takes food, and he's strengthened. So Paul is this famous persecutor of the church, right? He kills Christians. His job is to bind them and bring them, at, bring them back for conviction and death. So he's clearly not a follower of Jesus, right? But then, an encounter with the voice of the resurrected Christ changes him. He's transformed by the gospel of grace from killer of Christians to leader of Christians. These stories begin to give us uh, a peek in, into the insight of the power of the resurrection on a personal level, don't they? They show us what happens when, we, when, when people as individuals encounter the risen Christ. The more subtle argument of the passage, Paul says this, that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 people, and he says most of them are alive, but some have fallen asleep. And that's an intentional phrase. Um, that Paul uses to say, look, like when they die, it's not final anymore. It's as if they were asleep. Sleeping people all have one common action awaiting for them. They wake up. So Paul makes this emotional appeal by using, appeal by using symbolism, right? Like they're asleep, but they will be awakened again. That's the hope of the gospel that we when we die, it's not over. Because of Christ's bodily resurrection, we have the hope of a bodily resurrection. So this is the wonderful, beautiful, gracious gospel that we believe, right? What does Paul do with this grace, though? That's where we'll wrap up this morning. What does Paul do with this grace that he receives? Let's read. He, he says, um, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. That's what he's talking about, that Acts 9 passage. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, that his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Right, so we already talked about Paul as a persecutor, but now look what he is. I mean, he says, I work harder than any of them. 
right? It's a counterbalance statement. On the left, we say, um, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. And then on the right, we have Paul saying, but now I work harder than any of them. And, and this is balanced by, by the resurrection, by the gospel, by grace. Paul says, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. More than that, he drives home the point again of God's grace was not in vain. Right? He drives home that point of there's, there's faith that is in vain and there's faith that is not in vain. There's grace that is in vain and there's grace that's not in vain. And the resurrection is what we stand in. The beauty here is that Paul doesn't argue that it's salvation or, or for salvation or for grace or for mercy or for anything does he work hard. Paul does nothing to earn this encounter with Christ. The voice just comes. He does nothing to change his station from persecutor to apostle. God calls him. His eyes are literally and figuratively uh, unblinded. Right? He, the point is, for Paul, because he was so far from redemption, when he was redeemed by no work of his own, he goes so far on the other side of um, conformed to Christ, devoted to Christ, laborer for Christ. It's like a slingshot for him. He, he's so far from being a follower of Jesus. When he encounters the grace of the gospel, he slingshots and becomes the most devoted follower of Jesus. Again, never attributing that to anything but grace. All right, so the amount of grace he receives correlates to the amount of work he's willing to do for the, for the gospel. In his mind, he's the least worthy of grace, right? And that's why that's what grace is. We're all the least worthy of grace. Some people will say grace is undeserved um, or unmerited favor. And really, it would, be, it would be wiser to say it's demerited favor, which the difference is this. Unmerited favor means I've done nothing and I get grace. Demerited favor means I've actively been against this. And I received grace. Right, so when we're in our sin and, we, and we're reconciled to God, we, we've earned demerited favor. That's what grace is. We, not only have we just done nothing in the sight of God, we've actively been against him. So, so grace is so much better than even we, we conceive sometimes. But when, when we receive the grace of the gospel... Our only response in reality can be devotion, right? This is the gospel that changes Peter from denier to apostle to martyr. This is the gospel that changes James, who we didn't talk about, but James from just Jesus' brother to pillar of the early church. This is the gospel that changes 500 dead corpses to 500 sleeping people who will wake up again. This is the gospel that changes Paul from, from murderer, persecutor, to brilliant and devoted follower of Jesus. 
And this is the gospel that changes you and me from liar, adulterer, drunkard, porn addict, thief, anxious, depressed, etc., etc., etc. Whatever baggage or label you've carried around, this is the gospel that changes you from that to son or daughter of God. Changes you from not enough to perfect. It changes you from far away from God or anybody to family of God. This is the gospel. This is what it does, and it requires the resurrection. If Jesus is still in the grave, you still wear your labels. But he rose. So as a response, we're thankful, we're devoted, we're able to forgive, we're humble, we're patient, we're kind, we aren't boastful except in what Christ has done. And we're not perfect, so we fail in those things. But even so, we grow and we reconfirm ourselves, we redevote ourselves every hour, every minute, every day, as often as we need to, we redevote ourselves to the work of the ministry, the work of God which means devotion, which means exaltation, which means proclamation, which means evangelism, which means forgiveness, humility, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's our response to grace. So I, the way I think, typically when I hear something like that or anything, is, okay, what do we do? What do I need to do tomorrow? So that's how I end my sermons typically. Um, so what do you do this week? Don't put Jesus back in the grave. You can't, first of all. But, I mean, in your, in your mind, in your spirit, don't put him in the grave. When we, defined ourselves, when we define ourselves by who we were, not who we are in Jesus, then we're putting him back in the grave. He's resurrected, so you are resurrecting So we live into a new identity, not into our old one. So that's first. Don't put Jesus back in the grave. Two, work hard. A reality of the gospel of grace is that our joyful and natural response is to work hard in what? In sharing the gospel. It means we tell our neighbors, we tell our friends, we tell our coworkers that they don't have to be marked by who they were anymore. Yes, God accepts them. Yes, Jesus accepts them for who they are. Jesus can accept anybody for who they are. But Jesus isn't in the business of keeping them who they are. By the power of the Spirit, we change. And so, work hard this week. Work hard this year in telling people of the one who changes them. The only one who truly can. He's the only one who is resurrected the first of new creation right all things are being created new that is inaugurated with the resurrection without the resurrection nothing is being created new and so when we evangelize we're telling our neighbors friends family brothers sisters etc who don't believe in jesus's resurrection that they can be made new and they don't have to wear the label of of whatever liar drunkard thief you name it. And finally, as we, uh, so that's two, work hard, and three, 
um, the practical is right now for this one. When we come to the table this morning, would you dwell on and remember the body and blood of Jesus? Would you dwell on and remember the resurrection? That as we partake in the bread as the body and the wine or juice as the blood, we're remembering Christ's body destroyed, his blood poured out. We remember what the cross accomplished, but we also remember the resurrection. That there's an actual body with actual blood in it that rules and reigns us, reigns over us. That he's coming back to finish the work of making all things new. Let's pray. Father God, thank you first personally for the gospel that has saved me. Thank you for the resurrection that I stand in, that you have accepted payment on my behalf. Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters who I stand with that, um, and for the ones in the room this morning who are being owned by their old labels. Would you remind them that you've resurrected? Would you remind them that you've defeated death and who they were? Would you remind them that you're not in the grave? That your godness, that your deity is defined by living, breathing, heart-pumping flesh and blood. That's good news for us. That is good news for our world. Lord, will we dwell on it? Shame on me, Lord, when I forget it. Help it be ever-present for us as a church. Lord, if Sojourn does nothing else, would we faithfully remember this gospel and will we proclaim it to each other in our world? Lord, help us to work hard. We, we know that that has nothing to do with us. It's all by your grace, all by your spirit that we are able to work hard, so help us to do it for your glory alone. All things for your glory, Lord. We praise you, we love you, we trust you, we pray all this in your name. Amen.